Welcome to our final program of this historic conference. We are all so very grateful to Rabbi Hirsch, Rabbi Kaplowitz, Mark Anchin, the planning committee, and every single person who has contributed to our nourishment of mind and body during this two-day journey. I am Rabbi Amy Perlin, and I'm feeling a bit nostalgic this afternoon because I began my rabbinic career next door 41 years ago in the last class to enter 68th Street. And at the Purim Carnival that year, we sang 68th Street, 68th Street, I belong on 68th Street. So I'm feeling very much at home. I am honored to moderate this session, Recharging Reform Judaism, our movement leaders offer their vision for the future. The three leaders of our movement who will offer us their visions for the future this afternoon are the direct descendants of our founder, Rabbi Isaac Mayer Wise, who in the face of a lifetime of adversity and challenge, created the Union of American Hebrew Congregations in 1873, the first federation of Jewish congregations in American history, opened the Hebrew Union College, still the oldest Jewish seminary in America in 1875, and lived to see the formation of the Central Conference of American Rabbis, the largest and oldest rabbinical organization in the world in 1889, the year before he died. And they are the direct descendants of the founder of this sacred congregation, Rabbi Stephen S. Wise, who fought for the freedom of this and every pulpit, championed Zionism, the Zionism we cherish and hold dear, and founded JIR to raise up rabbis to do the same. My childhood rabbi, Solomon N. Lipman, of blessed memory, was a graduate of JIR. And I was raised to live and breathe that Zionism and the primacy of Jewish peoplehood in bringing forth tikkun olam in our world from my very first day of Sunday school. The merger of HUC and JIR in 1950 transformed our movement forever for the good. The establishment of our HUC-JIR campus in Jerusalem 60 years ago fulfilled that reformed Zionist dream, and we now train all of Israel's reform rabbis in our Jerusalem campus. Rabbi Hirsch wisely said yesterday, values come first, and then we create the organizational infrastructure to propagate them, unquote. So let me introduce you to the values of our movement leaders. Rabbi Jacobs, Rabbi Person, and Dr. Rehfeld live the Jewish value of kavod in all of its forms. 
from Kavod Harav to Kavod for all Jews and Jewish professionals, all human beings and all life, to Kibud Horim Umurim. Each one takes the sanctity of family as a cornerstone to all they do. As children, I have watched them care patiently and lovingly for elderly parents. And as parents, I admire their devotion to being fully present as they work each day to make the world a better place for their children and ours. And each shows honor to their teachers and mentors in the way they conduct themselves as human beings and professionals. Over this blessed ark says, each of them knows before whom they stand. And each of our leaders is an ardent reformed Zionist strengthening our movement here and in Israel with every fiber of their beings. Rabbi Shimon of Pirkei Avot 413 would tell you that each one of these reformed Jewish leaders wears the crown of Torah, living by its values and teachings and teaching its wisdom from the moment they rise until the moment they go to sleep. It is my honor and privilege to welcome to the Bema our movement leaders and my dear friends in alphabetical order. According to that Talmudic story that many of us not only know but recite in Menachot 29b, Moses slips into the back of Rabbi Akiva's class and Moses is agitated because he literally doesn't understand a single word that Akiva is saying. That is until one of the students asks, where is that from? And Akiva answers, Halakha le Sinai, it is halakha, it is law given to Moses on Mount Sinai. And with this, Nit Yashivad Dato, Moses' mind is put at ease. Well, if Isaac Mir Wise or Stephen S. Wise or Regina Jonas, let alone Akiva or Moses, were to sit in on any one of the sessions from these last two days, they might similarly be disoriented until they heard their names invoked. Leading transformational change is the story of our movement. This future that we're building, it must be shaped with smart, just, and creative strategies built on the enduring yet ever-evolving teachings of Torah. And let me say the deliberations at this conference address the challenges and opportunities that matter most and we are doing so with the utmost respect for the multiple legitimate views found within this big tent of our reform movement. So let me just lay it out really plainly. Here's the dominant reality that we all face. There are currently more Jews outside the walls of our synagogues and all of our Jewish communal institutions than on the inside. And some say we should ignore those who are not opting in and just busy ourselves with those who are within our walls. But thankfully, most of us are committed instead to finding new ways to bring in those who are not yet connected while nourishing all those who are. Here's some good news. Can you handle good news or should I just stay with the challenges? Is it okay? To, good news would be okay? All right, a little good news. 
So contrary to the dominant trends in American religious life, of which we've heard some statistics throughout our meeting, we Reformed Jews are the only theologically liberal denomination that has grown by leaps and bounds. According to the 2013 Pew survey, we had grown to be the largest stream in North American Judaism and 1% larger than all the other streams combined. We have been keeping as many of our kids identifying as Reformed Jews as adults as the Orthodox. And according to the 2020 Pew survey, we are now 7% larger than all the other movements combined. I don't tell you that to make us feel overly proud or triumphalist. I tell you that because that is the reality of this moment we are in. And here's the important part. According to recent surveys, many people are seeking spiritual and moral anchors in their lives, the kind that liberal Judaism offers. But most, as you all know, are not choosing to join congregations, at least not at first. The URJ is working assertively to create more entry points that will bring more people more deeply into all parts of our Jewish community. Our numeric strength is largely due to the inclusion of interfaith families who have felt our loving embrace. Much of the Jewish world has been saying to interfaith families, stay out. Our movement has been in this embrace that has been transformational. Those not yet connected, however, still include many interfaith families, but also Jews of color, LGBTQ plus individuals, and people with disabilities. The URJ has been providing racial equity, diversity, inclusion trainings to lay leaders and professionals. Why? So that we can more effectively lead our diverse movement as we create a culture of belonging. This ties directly to our ethics accountability work, creating safe, equitable, and morally accountable congregations and communities, which isn't some kind of political agenda. No, creating those kinds of communities, friends, that is holy work, and we're commanded to do it. The trend lines are very clear. Young Jews comprise the most diverse segment of our communities, Deuteronomy makes clear, You stand today, not some of you, but all of you. And inclusion is a moral Jewish obligation. It's also a smart way for us to grow our ranks. Synagogues are the most adaptable institutions in all of Jewish history. Originally, as you all know, synagogues were not the primary address for Jewish education, or were they based on membership with dues paid annually or tuition for classes? No, those are some of the recent innovations, which means, friends, not only they can be changed, they have been changed repeatedly through the years. The elements that are essential are the core functions of our sacred communities. Our people are still hungry for real community, not just places where we gather. And deep learning from the wells of Jewish wisdom. They're looking for communities that practice kindness 
and stand up for our most profound Jewish values. And yes, congregations can be transformational, especially when we practice pluralism internally within our walls, where liberals and conservatives can practice debating deeply and respectfully about the things that matter most, especially all things related to Israel. Now, many of our congregations entered and emerged from COVID with strength, but others are struggling. It's upon all of us, not some of us, all of us to ensure that the network is a network of vibrant, compelling, reformed Jewish congregations and communities. The URJ is doubling down on attracting and training new cohorts of leaders with a 21st century toolbox of liberal Jewish leadership practices as we also sharpen our services and support for small and medium-sized congregations, something only a movement can do effectively. Uh, let me just say what you already know. The URJ does not have all the answers, uh, but we do know this that together we have not only the ability to come up with those answers, but that we can reshape our community for the future that we need. Now, is our mission as reform movement leaders only to care about strengthening our reform movement? No, it is not, and it never was, and it never should be. We are Jewish leaders, and we're responsible for the well-being and strength of the entire Jewish people, past present, and future. This is what peoplehood is all about. I stand here today as a proud Zionist. I believe that the modern state of Israel is one of the greatest miracles and blessings of Jewish life. Our movement is deeply committed to Israel as a secure, Jewish, just, and democratic state. We stand firmly and publicly for the Israel we love. Over the past months, we've been standing in solidarity with our siblings who've been showing up week after week to protest for Israel's democracy. A non-democratic Israel is unthinkable for us, but not for everyone. Israelis have asked us, they've pleaded with us, to raise our voices and oppose the weakening of Israeli democracy. And so it is not a moment for us to be silent, to be quiet, to be absent. And our concern isn't only for the democratic part of the Jewish democratic state. We're also distressed by the official way authentic Judaism is so narrowly defined and so inequitably funded. In the name of Jewish unity, we must not be mute in the face of the ultra-nationalist and ultra-orthodox agenda of the Israeli government that regularly denigrates Reform Judaism, traffics in racism, homophobia, and religious intolerance. At today's Jerusalem Pride March, there were death threats for those who marched, and many of those who marched were part of our movement, people who every day are doing the work of shaping a vibrant and exciting and welcoming and transformational reform movement in Israel. And they were marching, and there were death threats to them, 
And here's the part, unfortunately, that's new. Some of the vicious taunts came from people who not just are in official positions, but some like Itamar Ben-Gavir, the Minister of Public Security, sit in the Israeli cabinet. We dare not sit this one out, my friends. Now, I want to just take a moment and talk for a second about this Israeli reform movement, the IMPJ. We've had leaders of the IMPJ here during our gathering, and they are extraordinary. And the growing network of our reform congregations and the unbelievable rabbinic ingenuity from our Maram rabbis deserves not just our quiet uh, kind of observing their progress. It is a moment that calls us to be in the deepest partnership with them. And IRAC, the Israel Religious Action Center, is on the front lines. And on any given day, you can see the lawyers, probably most often Orly Erzlachowski, arguing in the Supreme Court, the court that is being embattled in the judiciary overhaul. And this is what our movement's about. It's an unbelievable opportunity. Let us all be the partners that they need and deserve. And it's also crucial that our congregations and our young people travel to Israel. And I'll just tell you that this year so far, we've had unprecedented numbers, very large numbers of congregations going. And the coming months are also looking very, very full. And it's important that our young people also travel. So we have a partnership with Route One, which gives every teen traveler a $3,000 voucher, plus the one that you're familiar with for $250 that you get from Nifty. And when you kind of give that $250 from Nifty, people say, OK, that's four falafels and a Coke. But $3,250 really reduces the, uh, the bite of that price tag. And it's critical that they go before college, that they are able to go and create a deeper bond with Israel and a more sophisticated understanding of the challenges Israel faces. And we believe that our young people can fall in love with Israel with all of her challenges. So on our trips, we don't steer clear of hard subjects. We start from a place of deep connection and deep love, and we build the foundation for a lifelong connection and a lifelong relationship of strength to the state of Israel. Now, a little while back, I was invited to debate one of the candidates for chief rabbi of Israel. It took place in the Knesset. Now, I don't think that Israel should have a chief rabbi, and a few of you may agree with me. But if there was going to be a chief rabbi, this one was actually certainly one of the better ones. So in the midst of his harsh diatribe against me, but by extension, all of us, he said that I had made up the concept of tikkun olam. And I thought to myself, hmm, I wonder if he'd call my mom tell my mom that I made up the concept. My mom would have believed him. But then I thought, this is a clash of the Judaisms that we practice. So I challenged him. I said, if he were chosen to be the next chief rabbi, would he be zealous about making sure there's no chametz found in stores or hospitals on Pesach? 
and scrupulous about Shabbat restrictions in Israeli hotels, but silent about Israel's inadequate housing policies or the staggering gap between rich and poor or the despair of Palestinian citizens of Israel who feel that their lives can never improve by playing within the system, leaving extremists the opportunity to prey upon their frustration. Our reform movement here in North America and in Israel believes it is not possible to detach tikkun olam from serious Judaism. More importantly, our commitment to justice is theological. After all, we worship a God who is impatient with injustice. God tells Isaiah and each of us, dirshu mishpat, don't wait for justice, seek it. It's clear that connecting with those who are not yet connected can be very effective with social justice as that step. Now, numerous surveys tell us that most Jews identify being Jewish with shaping a more just and equitable world. But friends, it doesn't end there. Just as we cannot build and sustain our Jewish community solely on ritual and study, neither can we build and sustain our Jewish identity solely on Jewish social justice activism. Our challenge is not to choose between ritual study or activism, but rather to weave them together into the luminous tapestry of our Jewish future. The challenge in Judaism isn't universalism or particularism, but rather keeping them always in dynamic tension. You all know that we're experiencing this dramatic rise in anti-Semitism with physical attacks, anti-Semitic flyers left on our doorsteps, graffiti defacing public spaces and anti-Semites expressing their hateful views comfortably and publicly, including on social media. In response, the URJ has partnered with the ADL and Secure Communities Network to make our congregations and institutions safer. But let's also remember that one week after the deadliest attack on the Jewish community in US history at the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, Almost all of our congregations were filled to overflowing on that week after, not only with our members, but also with Christian, Muslim, Buddhist, Sikh, and Hindu neighbors who wanted to express their solidarity. Why did they show up? Because we have built deep relationships across lines of difference. That has not happened before. In the 1930s, it did not, and no other time in our nation's history. Let's not lose that extraordinary reality that we have helped to shape. And because of our role in progressive coalitions across North America, we and you are playing a very important role in addressing anti-Semitism from the left, yes, even while we confront the more violent expressions of anti-Semitism from the white supremacist Christian nationalist elements on the right. As we fight anti-Semitism and all of its corollary forms of racism, let's not be distracted from our main task, which is to build and strengthen compelling and proud Jewish communities. Joining the Jewish people includes immersion in mikvah surrounded by the Mayim Chaim, the life-giving waters of Torah, so too our immersive programs like our 14 URJ camps, our NIFTI, Yala Israel, lead to lifelong impacts on Jewish identity. 
In 2013, we did a serious study of our alumni of our Nifty trips and our URJ camps and found that four out of five, four out of five are deeply engaged in Jewish life. Likewise, the Federation system did a study. They had never before found a short-term program that had the lasting impact that our Let's Ken programs do. Friends, the jury is in. Immersing young people, families, adults in Jewish life leads to more committed Jewish lives. So let's do more of that deeper immersive approach. We're, as I conclude, we're in the midst of an existential battle for the future of religious life between the fundamentalists and the liberal expressions of religion. And we know, we know the power of liberal Jewish approach that meets the needs of 21st century Jews who overwhelmingly reject the strictures of Orthodox Judaism and the emptiness of secularism, but crave, crave the avenues to find spiritual fulfillment in a modern, rational and non-rational, existentially fulfilling way. What we do really matters. What we do is what the largest swath of Jewish and spiritual seekers are searching for. So let's make sure to leave here today ready, ready to lead not separately, ready to lead together with courage, with depth, with imagination in our task of making real for generations to come our dreams of what Reformed Judaism can be. Thank you. When I first came into the position of chief executive of the CCR in 2019. I spent time studying the writings of those who had led the CCR in the past. I wanted to understand what had motivated these men, what was meaningful to them about the work of the CCR. And I asked questions. What should the CCR of tomorrow be? What is our unique contribution, not just to rabbis, but to reform Jewish life? In what ways are we still the organization envisioned by our founder, Isaac Meyer Wise, in 1889? In what ways are we already very different? And in what ways should we change? So of course, we have evolved and iterated on the CCR of Wise's original vision. And you know, we didn't share our talk, so um, great midrash that you chose. Um, <laughs> as in that midrash, right, about you know, Moses and Akiva's academy, Okay, which I won't share because we just heard a great version of it. Um, but we can also ask 133 years later, what would Rabbi Wise recognize in the CCR of today? That may just be the ongoing thread through all of these conversations, but we'll see. Um, he might be surprised to know that we now have 2,200 members spanning North America, Israel, Europe, South America, Australia, New Zealand, and Hong Kong. Surely he would be surprised to see the wide and ever-growing diversity of rabbis, a far cry from the group of 90 men with whom he gathered at the first ever CCR convention in 1890. Having just celebrated 50 years of women in the rabbinate, we are now looking forward to and preparing for what the rabbinate will look like 50 years hence. It is safe to say that we will look even more beautifully diverse and even more representative of the American and worldwide Jewish population. 
Our mission today states, the CCR supports and strengthens rabbis so that our members, their communities, and reform Jewish values thrive. Which leads to perhaps the most important question of all, why does any of this matter? And that's the question that I find exciting and galvanizing. Think about the kava and the kavana of our reform liturgy, what's fixed and what is ever-changing. We've got the kava of the matbeit filah on one side, the liturgy which, you know, yes, changes and has gone through reform iterations and development, but is still our liturgy. And then the kavanah, the interpretive versions or the countertext on the other side of the page. The work of the CCR is like that of a prayer book in the interplay of that kava and kavanah. Now, Okay, you might think like, oh God, here she goes talking about books again, right? But remember that one of the reasons that Wise founded the CCR, in addition to being what he called a nucleus for rabbis to come together, was to publish prayer books. The prayer books that he believed would unite the American Jewish community. And today prayer books specifically and books generally remain central to the identity of the CCR. As a legacy institution of the movement, the kava is what we have always done to support rabbis and the reform community, to help rabbis continue to develop their skills after ordination, to publish liturgical and study resources for the whole community, to help make matches between rabbis and communities looking to hire a rabbi, and to be an intellectual hub raising up the voice of the reform rabbinate and creating meaningful content for the reform world. The kavanah is that which continues to evolve in response to changing needs. The breadth and specific content of these services, the ways in which we provide these services, how they are delivered, the topics on which we raise our voice, the questions we ask, and the infrastructure that we create to face new challenges. The kava is present in our internal facing work, supporting rabbis in their professional development and career trajectories, as well as I need to add in their personal struggles so that rabbis can support their communities. The kavanah is found in the specifics of these offerings, the webinars, in-person and virtual trainings, cohort groups, support groups, annual Israel trips, multi-day learning experiences, and an annual convention, the last one of which brought hundreds of rabbis to Israel for a week offerings which continue to grow and expand. The goal of compassionate care of rabbis is part of our kava because we believe that with all the caretaking rabbis do in their communities, we need to take care of the rabbis. One example of how the kavanah of this care is expressed right now is through having several trained counselors on staff who offer free short-term counseling to our members and their families. Another is through professionally-led support groups. And to my earlier question of why does any of this matter, it matters because I believe in the strength of the reform movement and I believe in rabbis. Moreover, I believe that strong, flourishing rabbis lead strong, flourishing communities. All that we do to strengthen rabbis strengthens the Jewish community as a whole. We are all part of this shared ecosystem. And indeed, much of our work is also outward facing. As the voice of the Reform Rabbinate and the publishing center of the Reform Movement, a significant part of our work is the world of ideas. 
from forthcoming books like a collection of an analysis of Reform Responsa and Reform Halakha by Mark Wachowski to a new translation of Buber's The Way of Humanity and the forthcoming English version of Dahlia Marks From Time to Time, Journeys in the Jewish Calendar. We publish books not only for rabbis, but for the whole Jewish community, offering meaningful, challenging, communal conversation throughout the movement. Hearkening back to our history, we remain committed to ongoing liturgical and ritual development and innovation through our Sidorim, Malksarim, Haggadot, certificates, and lots of other resources, and I do need to say, in partnership with our cantorial colleagues. So too, our historic work on resolutions and responses speak to the critical issues of the moment. These documents also elevate a uniquely reformed voice in the broader marketplace of ideas, taking on the profoundly important task of offering a contemporary and theological rabbinic countervoice to the arguments of conservative Christianity. And even as we respond to the keva of addressing the needs of today, we must be looking at the ways that the ground is shifting under our feet. The pandemic taught us that we can be incredibly nimble under pressure. When the pandemic hit, we immediately shifted what we were offering to our members and their communities and how we were offering it. We helped rabbis quickly get up to speed with technological aspects of what it meant to lead services from an ironing board in your living room. We made our liturgical resources available to their communities, either free or low cost. We created opportunities for free coaching and advising from experts, and we offered support groups to help with the mental health challenges rabbis faced during the pandemic. I will never forget a phone call I got from a colleague telling me that he had just done the 11th COVID funeral in one week and talking about what that impact was on him and what he needed from us. Our work made a difference in the lives of rabbis during that difficult time and supported their communities. That's an example of a unique change that needed an immediate response. But the truth is we are living in a time of constant change and recalibration. Now, not all change is bad, right? In fact, a lot of it's really good and necessary. But some of it is difficult and some of it is even painful. We are confronting serious challenges as ethical actors, as Jews, and as leaders in the reform movement. Many of our systems, assumptions, and operating principles need rethinking. We're seeing shifting demographics, more mergers, growth in some parts of the country and shrinkage in others. We're seeing fewer rabbis going into congregational work and more going into other types of service to the Jewish people. We're seeing the development of online-only communities, the increasing commodification of Jewish life, and how business practices, for better or worse, are impacting the ways that synagogues are being run and the ways in which rabbis and cantors and educators are being treated. And along with leaders of all faith traditions, denominations, and houses of worship, we are seeing the decline in institutionalism and the rise in post-denominational spiritual seekers, across Gen X, Millennials, and Gen Z. These changes we face are not just reform movement, Jewish or North American challenges, but the realities of our time. All of these issues are calling for attention, 
and are already beginning to impact on how we staff the CCR, what work our board takes on, what we deliver to members, what we publish, what task forces we create, and what conversations we engage in internally and with our movement partners, with whom we share a goal of a reform movement that is creative, healthy, and thriving. And I will add, I am also energized by partnerships we've been developing outside the reform movement as well. There's so much that we have to learn from each other. One of the things I'm most proud about of the CCAR is that we are an ever-evolving, always learning and growing organization. Rather than bemoaning change and getting stuck in nostalgia, we must face these challenges courageously and fearlessly. We must be willing to experiment, and sometimes we're going to fail, and then we have to go try something else. And that is what is so exciting about the moment that we're in, because it calls for us to be brave and to be bold. There is so much new work we're involved in. Some of you who attended our most recent CCR convention have heard about some of the new work and early fruits of our innovations in creative thinking, including changes to our ethics system, a newly formed Israel cabinet with our partners at Artsa, a new approach to placement, and so much more. And with the limited time here, I can't go through them all, but I do want to highlight three important new initiatives. The first has to do with connecting to Israel, and this is our annual Israel trips. Now, it's not new, but it is renewed. This work has long been a priority for me and the CCR. With the pandemic behind us, we now have a trip in the works for this coming January. It will be the first that we have done since January 2020. These trips are subsidized and therefore provide a more accessible way for rabbis to spend time in and engage with Israel. We all know many rabbis, including I'm sure many of you, who go to Israel every year. But what you may not know is that there is a significant percentage of rabbis who haven't been in five years, in 10 years, even in 15 or 20 years. Their understanding about Israel is often out of date, and they're not adequately prepared to teach, lead, or preach about Israel. These trips are a chance to go and learn from Israeli and other colleagues, from Maram, from IMPJ, and to connect with what's going on in the reform movement and the broader, of course, country. They are a way to keep deepening the relationship between our communities in North America and Israel, a way to develop a further sense of Jewish peoplehood, and a way to connect with the cutting edge thinkers, innovators, and decision makers on the ground. Our rabbis need to stay up to date and connected with Israel. These trips make it possible for rabbis to go to Israel and bring home new perspectives, new relationships, and new understandings of Israel that have important long-term implications. Two, supporting the movement. The Small Congregation Clergy Collaborative. We all know that there is a challenge with the number of rabbinic students available to serve student pulpits. And we know that there are congregations going without rabbinic services. These are among the realities of today. And I am really proud that we have been able to create a new experimental model of how to serve these communities, working together with the ACC and the URJ to provide rabbis and cantors to these underserved communities. This project achieves many additional goals, not the least of which is providing meaningful service for those clergy looking for part-time rabbinic work or post-retirement ways to continue to serve the Jewish people, as well as helping to maintain Jewish life in small congregations. And that is in addition to our Heartland project, which 
in some ways serve some of those same goals by allowing small congregations in remote areas to hire full-time rabbis who are willing to make a commitment for the long term and see if those congregations with that kind of leadership can continue to, to really thrive and, and grow. And then there is the third exciting project. And this is the new Reform Movement Torah Commentary. Our relationship to Torah learning is at the heart of who we are and what we do as rabbis. When the commentary we lovingly call the Plout Commentary was published in 1981, it was an amazing gift to the Jewish community and enabled generations of Reformed Jews to access and engage with the Torah. The impact of this commentary on Reformed Jewish life has been tremendous. And when the Women's Commentary was published in 2008, it too was groundbreaking and created additional levels of access through pioneering new commentary and approaches to Torah study. Now, as the Plout Commentary approaches its 50th year and the Women's Commentary reaches its milestone of 15 years, it is time to plan for the gift for the future of the Jewish community and ensure ongoing engagement with Torah using new tools, new research, and new scholarship for the 21st century. Educated Jews are committed Jews. We have begun to take the first steps which will lead to this new commentary. And I want to be clear about something. I am not talking just about a book. I am talking about the digital age and what a Torah commentary looks like in the digital age. There's a lot more to say about this. I am running out of time, so I will not. Um, but I will just say that it also includes a new translation, the first we will ever have that belongs to us as Reformed Jews, and that is incredibly exciting. So I will rush and finish up. The work, this work of the CCR matters because ultimately it impacts the community as a whole. Strong, flourishing rabbis lead strong, flourishing communities, and strong, flourishing communities pave the way for a strong, flourishing Jewish future. We are an aspirational organization focused on the urgencies of today while planning for the needs of tomorrow. And I'm not going to tell you that everything is perfect and that we're doing it all correctly. There is always more to do and more to learn, but that's what excites me and keeps me going through all these challenges. The great privilege of leading an organization that strives to be compassionate, courageous, and ever-evolving, willing to stumble as we learn, and not afraid of change or of asking hard questions. Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, it's really amazing to stand here to see just the energy and, uh, uh, and the strength of this group. Uh, it's an honor to be here. I've been excited about this gathering from the start, as Ami will attest to, by attracting hundreds of people to this gathering over the last two days. You are, we are, recharging Reform Judaism where it should be recharged among Reform Jews. That was an applause line. Can we? <laughs> I do believe we are suffering from collective amnesia, that we sometimes forget that institutions are not movements, that nations and states are not peoples, and that it is we, the people, the Jewish people, 
who share a common approach to live meaningful Jewish lives. We are the movement. Institutions like HUC, CCAR, uh, the URJ, the ACC, even the Stephen S. Wise Free Synagogue, we are here to support our collective great good purposes and should never be confused for the great good purposes themselves. And what are those great good purposes of Reform Judaism? I believe we are a faith bounded by reason, where faith gives meaning to what reason and science tells us and will never be ever and will never end. And Brian Stoller's remarks today about the, the mechanism of the car, I couldn't quite follow the image, but I agree with it. That somehow there's always going to be a question that science answers and that reason must be put into a faith of meaning that only faith can provide. That number two, we embrace choice grounded in a disciplined commitment to practice and to learning. The we oughts of Jewish life, to use Rabbi Splansky's term from earlier today. And that we embrace particularism never for its own sake alone, but always bounded by and for the purpose of pursuing justice. So hold that thought. I'll come back to it. I want to begin with a few short stories. The first story is about a young woman so inspired by Rabbi Sally Presand that she decided to become a rabbi herself. Now, it's a familiar story by now, and maybe it applies to some of you, except for one detail. The woman I'm speaking about is Rabbah Sarah Hurwitz, the founder and president of Yeshivat Maharat, the liberal orthodox yeshiva for women. You could clap for that. That's okay. <laughs> and you can clap because she said that at a graduation ceremony this year in New York at HUC. Second story. In an important book on science and religion, a rabbi and PhD wrote the following, quote, science reveals the wisdom of God and creation. And the author encouraged us to view religion and science in complementary metaphorical frames. Our faith is bounded by reason, providing meaning and purpose to what science reveals about God's universe. The volume could be read as nothing more than a 300-page extended interpretation of the second paragraph of our Pittsburgh platform, which says, quote, we hold that the modern discoveries of scientific researchers in the domain of nature and history are not antagonistic to the doctrines of Judaism, a revolutionary claim when it was made. The author, though, was not a graduate of HUCJAR. It was Rabbi Dr. Lord Jonathan Sachs. Third story. When Reform Judaism began, it celebrated informed choice of autonomous individuals as prior to any community dictator obligation we had. Yet it was the conservative rabbi, Rabbi Harold Schulweis, who purportedly first said, we are all Jews of choice. He, of course, was referring to what it meant to be a converted Jew today versus Jews, but the point is we are all choosing Judaism. And it is a sentiment that has been widely embraced by Jewish leaders from all modern denominations. Final story. According to Pew, members of one Jewish denomination of the three say that social justice is an expression of their religious identity at a statistically significant and large difference higher rate than members who identify with the other two denominations. Now, you might be surprised, as I was, to learn that it's Orthodox Jews who say social justice is an expression of their religious identity compared to conservative or reform. 
compared to 33 or 34 percent of Reform Jews. In the Q&A, I can talk about the statistics behind that and why I think that's actually a reliable measure, undercounting what Reform Jews think. The key is the orthodox number. I'll come back to that in a moment. But I'm sharing these stories to illustrate what others have said from this BIMA yesterday and over the last two days. And particularly, I want to call out Tarlin Rabazeda, and I forgive me if I'm pronouncing that wrong, that our modern Jewish communities are differentiated today far more by cultural practices that their member ch members choose to take on than any principled ideological commitments that they feel. All modern Jews accept that our faith must be bounded by reason and science. Many, I would say most, who live halachically do so today because of their own choice to live disciplined lives of learning and ritual engagement, not because they feel obligated or browbeaten to follow the will of the cisgendered male heterosexual rabbi as they do in fundamentalist Jewish communities. And all modern Jews recognize that our particularistic commitments to Judaism and our people have universal implications as well as committing to our own. Well, at least 45% of Orthodox Jews, which is saying a lot compared to where it might have been a different era. All of the key revolutionary ideals that differentiated Reform Judaism from secular, ethical, culture on one side and religious fundamentalism on the other, again to invoke Rabbi Splansky's helpful trichotomy, all of the key revolutionary ideas have become part and parcel of the ideology of all modern denominations. Reform Judaism, in short, as a response to modernity, has succeeded in reforming Judaism. Thank you. Thank you, Rabbi Glickman. Now, I don't mean to say that the struggle is over. The gradual opening of all modern movements to female clergy, LGBTQ plus equality still has a long way to go, particularly among those on our non-fundamentalist religious right. And good Lord, Yeshiva University's medieval restrictions on gay and lesbian student organizations show just how far even modern denominations have to go, including, let's just be clear, our own, despite all of our commitments. But slowness and resistance to change has replaced refusal to change, a refusal that characterized even conservative Jewish communities less than 20 years ago. For any serious sociologist of religion, the question is not whether change will come to the modern religious, but when. And let us please stop obfuscating by saying Haredi or ultra-Orthodox or Torah Judaism, and I thank Rabbi Jacobs for saying it what it is. We have communities that are practicing Jewish fundamentalism. Let's name it for what it is. So if Reform Judaism has been so successful as an ideology, why then are our congregations losing members? Why is our youth movement a fraction of what it once was? Why are our incoming classes at HUC for rabbinical school the smallest they have been in decades? Only three times since 2007 have we recruited 30 students or more in 2010, in 2018, and in 2021. I want to suggest that our challenges are related closely to the successes I've just outlined. Reform Judaism has had in the success it's had in remaking uh, contemporary Judaism. And I think our best response is to think less about denominations and movements and more about coalescing our communities for a vibrant contemporary Judaism 
that we must produce and create and inspire leadership for. As we think about movements, I want to put this in a broader sociological context because we're not the only movement, nor are the Jewish movements the only movements. We can learn something from sociology. Movements are groups of people who share an ideology. They band together to serve a set of aims related to those shared commitments. Institutions serve movements by helping people more effectively secure their aims. When a movement's aims have been achieved, as I want to suggest many of ours have been, institutions that supported them tend to weaken, tend to look for other purposes. Think about any of your favorite movements of the last uh, 100 years, the labor movement, the civil rights movement, the women's movement, the Zionist movement. They all have the same pattern. Think about the labor movement. They coalesced under the idea of worker justice, of workplace justice. They named aims, aims like child labor and minimum wage laws aims like the 40-hour work week, like workplace safety regulations that they wanted to achieve based on their values of workplace justice. Institutions like labor unions were either created or strengthened to help them achieve these age and the aims, and they weakened when the values or the aims were perceived to have been achieved. I don't mean that they have been achieved. I mean that they perceived to have been achieved so that those institutions are not seen to be needed anymore. Now, I am simplified, uh, simplifying here significantly, and you'll all tell me about, well, what about Starbucks and Walmart? And it's because the need is seen to be there, so people are organizing again. But in broad strokes, I want to just say that um, the fact that our institutions are struggling is actually, I think, evidence of the great success of the ideology itself. But it does lead us to ask, what are the takeaways for our institutions? The good news is, as I think it was either Rabbi uh, Hoffman or uh, Rabbi Stoller expressed this morning, there are people today seeking meaning and purpose for whom the traditional language of God and religion and liturgy is not resonating right now, but that doesn't mean they are secular materialists. The bad news for us is that they're seeking it with a level of seriousness and engagement. And why is that bad news for us? Because to draw on uh, Rabbi Dan Levin's terms this morning, Reform Judaism does have a reputation for being rather thin. And that's a challenge for us. In 2015, when I was the CEO of the Jewish Federation of St. Louis, uh, Rick invited me to speak to the board of the URJ there. And I shared with them my concern that many of their rabbis, many of you, might not choose to join the very congregations that you have led and have dedicated your lives to inspiring, drawing people in to seek meaning and purpose. And that concern remains, not for all of you, but for enough of you, or enough of you that, that you know, your colleagues, who despite your understanding that we need a more serious engaged Judaism, have struggled to inspire, and those you inspire are then seeking it at other places. How do we sustain that? With Rabbi Splansky, and I'll say with Rabbi Amy Perlin, we need more demanding Judaism, not less. We need to set higher expectations and move away from, in Rabbi Perlin's important framing, I don't know if this is public, but it's about to be, not lowest common denominator Judaism. I know it's something you would publicly affirm. We need to celebrate what makes us more distinctive. What distinguishes us, I believe, as a movement from others is not the demandingness and the high standards we set, but the way we manage to them through education and dialogue rather than through imposition upon others. 
So let me close with some practical ideas for institutional reform, at least at Hebrew Union College. First, having recognized that modern Judaism has been reformed, I believe we need to seek out partnerships across all denominations of modern Judaism and raise up rabbis, cantors, educators, nonprofit leaders to serve the Jewish people as a whole, which is, as you heard from both Hera and Rick, where are rabbis where so many of you are going anyway? Leveraging the power of our collective institutional investments, working more closely with liberal seminaries. And I'm very proud of the partnership that we have uh, engaged in with the five residential rabbinical seminaries uh, to work much more closely together during COVID. We're going to have our first in-person gathering to talk about ways that's AJU, JTS, Hebrew College, RRC, and HUC uh, in June. Second. I believe HUC has an extraordinary opportunity, precisely because there are so many seekers of meaning and purpose, to expand on what we do in music and spirituality as an on-ramp to our congregations. Does anyone here know that HUC actually does not have a cantorial school? All right, that's hyperbole, we do. Uh, we do have a cantorial school, and by the way, it is the best damn cantorial school in the world, and that is not hyperbole. And it produces the best cantors in all of Jewish life, and that's also not hyperbole. And they are creating pathways into serious Jewish life, inspiring so many of the next generation. But what I do mean to say is that our school is not actually called a cantorial school. It never has been. It's called the Debbie Friedman School of Sacred Music. And sacred music not only is about the promotion of Jewish leaders, of cantorial leadership, it is about the work of our cantors, about our singer-songwriters, and all who have been inspired by the revolution brought forth almost through the sheer will of the one individual it was named for, Debbie Friedman, and her generation at URJ's summer camps and at NIFTY. The reform movement, thanks to that work, has completely revolutionized modern Jewish music as a pathway to spiritual practice, and we need to build on that and expand on that, not narrow that in any way. And for this, I want to recognize the presence of Paul Reichenbach and Louis Dobin, stalwarts of our youth movement who have been here slogging through two days of this. Paul and Louis, thank you for your leadership of our movement, of our camps, and our youth. We need to do even more. Friends, we are living in an age that reminds me of Francisco Goya's masterpiece, The Sleep of Reason Brings Forth Monsters. We need to embrace our core idea that we are a faith bounded by reason and celebrate that, that reason is the way through which we partner with God in revelation, generating the ideas that are going to help us as a religious matter motivate people to fight climate change, public health, vaccinations, I'm sorry, not fight pilot health or vaccination. <laughs> and finally, Jewish leadership. We have to create a focus, as we have been doing at the Zelico School of Jewish Nonprofit Management, to engage secular Jews, to find a way through hybrid education to reach out to second degree, uh, second career Jews, uh, second <laughs> Jews who are seeking second careers as rabbi and cantors and Jewish professionals. All right, so finally, I want to end and, um, so we can get to some q and I want to end where this conference began on the importance of Zionism and Jewish peoplehood that has been and will remain core to HUC. I so appreciated Ami's discussion of the history of our movement, 
Rabbi Hirsch, thank you for that. But I do have to express some concern with what I've heard over the last two days, and let me explain. I want to push back gently on the idea that went undifferentiated in your remarks that peoplehood and nationhood are the same thing. While it's true that the reformers rejected statehood and the rejected nationhood, it's not quite right to say that the reformers rejected Jewish peoplehood. They were writing at a time of growing nationalism of the 19th century, when the question was which of the many thousands of peoples then existent in the world would have the right to form and control their own apparatuses of government, their own states, the apparatus of sword and purse. Reformed Jews did give up their aspiration to be a political nation, to have the control of government, but it's less clearly did they reject the claim that they were a Jewish people. Consider the third paragraph of the Pittsburgh Platform with the distinction between people and nation and state clearly in mind. Quote, we recognize in Mosaic legislation the system of training the Jewish people for its mission during the Jewish life in Palestine. The reason to give up the commitment to Jewish law, as Spinoza had first remarked, was that we no longer were a nation in the governmental sense. The Jewish people had a life before Palestine. The Jewish people had a life after Palestine. The Jewish people lives, whether in Israel or out of it, a shared history and continuity tied together by our religious principles and values rather than our political aspirations, but a people all the same. Now, I'm overstating the case to be sure, and I want to be clear, I am a Zionist. HUC is a Zionist institution, and I think it would be a disaster for the Jewish people to lose control of their state. I'm proud of the Zionism of our faculty in Jerusalem, joined by the 126 Israeli rabbis that HUC has ordained who have created the Israeli movement for progressive Judaism, turning Isaac Mayer Wise's model on its head where you have the congregations forming the seminary. Our seminary has produced the rabbis that have formed the Israeli reform movement in Israel, and that is something that you should be proud of because it's your funding of the, the uh, URJ and HUC that has allowed us to do that and has supported the creation of the reform movement in Israel. And so I think the founders were wrong to reject Jewish nationalism. But the point, and I did have a point at the beginning of this, the point uh, is that one can re re embrace a robust idea of Jewish peoplehood without demanding the control of the apparatus of the state. By collapsing the two, we risk putting our commitment to Jewish peoplehood in service to the awesome and fearsome apparatus of state power, rather than recognizing that it's the state that must always be beholden to its people, its aims, and its moral ideals, rather than the other way around. So when I look, when I look at the concerns that I've heard expressed here, that, in, that Amcha and our Jewish people are expressing, including those who wish to be rabbis at HUC, our students who are choosing to devote five years of study, including their first one in Israel with us, in service to God and the Jewish people. And when I look at even the tiny fraction of our students who signed a letter that I found to be profoundly offensive, profoundly insensitive, I do not see them rejecting Jewish peoplehood. I see them making judgments that the government of Israel is not protecting the Jewish people, but making them less safe. 
is not promoting the expansion of Jewish, Jewish pluralism, but narrowing it, and not embracing the principles of democracy and justice, but violating them. I don't always agree with them, but I hardly think what they're doing is denouncing our ideals as a Jewish people. HUC has been crystal clear that we support true giant Zionism, a Zionism committed to the defense and flourishing of the Jewish people, a Zionism committed to democracy and justice, and not the bizarro Zionism now emerging in some quarters of the Jewish world. So I end with the last question. How do we cultivate Ahavat Yisrael among our students given this? How do we achieve our aim as stated on our missions qualifications that we ask our students to read and affirm that leadership in the Jewish community requires a commitment to the well-being of the land, the people, and the state of Israel, as well as the entire global Jewish community? And I'll end again with a note of concern for the sake of queuing up some Q&A, right? The kinds of things that I heard here leave me frankly troubled, and I'll just name them. They suggest to me that some would like us to have our students sign statements of fidelity, a return to a kind of Jewish McCarthyism on the, on the, on the left, on the, I don't know where this would be, administer litmus tests of admissions, erect all kinds of walls and barriers that in very other contexts this morning we heard were objectionable and they are right to be objectionable because they limit political discourse. In this morning, we celebrated that ideological diversity and implored us to respect machloket about political issues in the United States. And I completely agree with that, and I am concerned. And Tarlin, your story, it was sickening to me, and I told you that yesterday. And we have to open up, in HUC particularly, to create a space for differing views. But this morning, one participant resorted to name-calling when it came to disagreement about one political issue that he disagreed with, namely concerning Israel. And he stated, quote, if you don't believe that Israel is a moral beacon, you are morally disfigured. And I will tell you, many of you clapped and I understood the rhetorical punch because I believe Israel is a moral beacon, not only in the region, but the world that we should be proud of. But I don't think it's crazy for some to ask me to justify my feelings. And given what we see, I don't think that you're necessarily morally disfigured simply because you cannot in good conscience endorse that belief. In fact, if you're struggling with that, I want you to come and learn why I think Israel is a moral beacon. For you see, my friends, and this is where I will really end, I believe in the power of liberal education. Standing on the very bema of the very synagogue name for my predecessor's commitment to preaching without fetter, to a place, to being a place of free ideas, the idea that we should refuse admission or ordination because of a student's political commitments or political activism is disturbing to me. Smacking of the kind of fundamentalism that Reform Judaism needs to continue to reject. We manage almost all of our expectations about how our students live, not through prohibition and requirement, but through dialogue and education, because we see each student as capable of reason and thought, we believe in the power of education to transform minds and, and lives. And we believe they are capable of being inspired by the heroic history of our people and its reclamation of the land of Israel. And it's because of that that our institution remains both Zionist and always committed to the power of free thinking and ideas. There are certain boundaries, but let's recognize that what's being asked may have more to do with assuaging our own discomfort 
of a new generation than expressing the confidence we should have in the principles of Zionism and the principles of Reform Judaism. The students who have been inspired to join us by your very work that has now indeed reformed our modern Jewish world. Thank you. Um, okay, for our panel. For each of the leaders of HECJIR, UR, JNCCAR, do you believe that we need a new iteration of Judaism? That we re-envision the synagogue, thinking about God and doing Jewish? And if so, are you prepared to sponsor experimental communities searching for that new iteration? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. There's no way that this thing, first of all, the idea that we need a new iteration, as if there's going to be some laboratory, they're going to mix some you know, chemicals and a little pyrex and then come out and here's the new. It's always in need of that kind of reimagine, keep what is obviously profound, find new forms. But when the delivery of the thing, you know, let, let, does anybody here regularly talk mostly on their landline? Does anybody here just mostly? I don't even know what my landline telephone number is. So the truth is, that doesn't mean I'm talking less. I'm just not doing it in the form. So I think the idea of how do we create space, and by the way, I'm just going to say that's one of the things we're doing with Nifty, because I just want to lay it out there, that our students, our teens, actually, they don't want to be, you know, kind of handed something that's created and say, here it is. We built it. Now it's yours. They want to be involved in shaping and reshaping and reimagining. And that is actually true. And we see the experimentation that you referenced as well, and that you obviously see in all of your travels. It's exciting. And if it comes from within the movement, fabulous. If it comes from outside, let's learn what we can. So I think that is not a choice. If we don't uh, embrace and seed those kinds of new communities, Congregation is the most powerful community maybe we have in history in terms of the place where all these things come together. But we knew new ways for people to come together and do that. We don't know exactly what it's going to look like. We don't know all the forms that that Judaism is going to be, the theological, the textual. That's got to be our, our bargain for the future. Can I focus on the word sponsor? Are we willing to sponsor? I, we need to sponsor this. We, uh, we, have, um, we, we have a funding model, you may know it, it's called RMAC, and it's the, uh, the investment that you make as congregations, for those of you in congregations, which most of you, that invest in the URJ and HUC. 56 cents goes, of every dollar goes to the URJ, 44 cents of every dollar goes to HUC. For HUC, we have lost $16 million in real value since 2006, yearly, annually. That doesn't help us be able to sustain our own institution as it is. Some of that is because you all are struggling so mightily in a world which is declining religious affiliation and engagement. We know this not only in Jewish life, but in Christian life. But some of that is because of the choice that you are making to take the funds that would go to RMAC and put it somewhere else. 
I had a discussion in the last month with someone who uh, leads a congregation that made a decision not to fund RMAC for some of it and send it rather to the reform movement in Israel. And I said to the person, why are you hurting HUC? And they said, well, we're supporting HUC. No, that's 44 cents on every dollar that's not coming to us that's going over to do what? To support the graduates that we are ordaining, that we are recruiting, that we have to sustain. I would love to sponsor, I'm sure Rick would love to sponsor, all of you and send that money back. We need to figure out how to fund the sacred work that all of us are doing in a way that is sustainable and make the decisions accordingly. So I'm stuck a little bit on the word sponsor also because, well, I do think it means different things for each of us and, and I'm not sure where to go with that word, but I think the rest of it actually has so much to do with the work that we're involved in right now. Um, one of the most amazing learning experiences for me was um, the development of Mishkan and Nefesh. And I'm thinking about that because what it was was I mean, pods, if you will, or communities, right? All over the country, all over North America, studying, piloting, giving feedback, making suggestions. And, it, and the conversations that ensued around that were about God. They were about peoplehood. They were about connection to our deepest Jewish ideas. They were about theology. It was such a rich, intense experience of asking people to take part in these conversations and then share back their ideas with us. And so that's what I think of when I think of that question, if you take the word sponsor out of it. But I'm also thinking about it now in terms of the work ahead of us with the development of a new Torah commentary because that's exactly, again, what we're going to be asking communities to take part in. To, to be these learning communities, to talk about the big ideas about how we engage with Torah, about what are our questions to the text? What, what are the questions the text asks us? And how do we, as Reformed Jews, respond? What do we need from it? What tools do we need? And so on and so on and so on. So, so that part, yes, yes, deeply. Thank you. There are multiple questions, Rick, on, uh, please address directly the accusation that the Reform Movement is disproportionately focused on social justice. And then um, somebody who writes, in my experience, all programs that come from our movement, and there's a list, um, are in line with the democratic platform. Um, how, how do you want to address the multitude of questions I have here about reform Judaism and social justice? Well, I'm glad to have an opportunity to address it. And I know that my colleague, Rabbi Jonah Pesner, would also welcome that opportunity because there are a lot of assumptions that we've made about social justice here that are simply not true. Um, social justice is not something that we made up. Um, I told that story about the debate with the chief rabbi. It's fundamental. It's about ethics in community. What, what is social justice? It's not actually... Um, some discrete thing that we can point to and say that's somehow an import. The question about how authentically, and I tried to make the case a moment ago, that you can start where people are, it's not where you end. We don't believe that social justice is actually Judaism. It's a critical part of the aorta of Judaism. Uh, in the same way you can start, no one ever says if you start with you know, Shabbat observance or a little Torah study, no one's going to say, you can't start there. 
Well, you can start where people are, and if they already have a commitment to social justice as a practice, as a spiritual practice, let's build on it. Let's do what we do at Litakan. Let me just tell you, if you haven't been, to, how many of you have been to Litakan? Put your hand up. Do we start by, you know, kind of prepping for Capitol Hill? No, we start with Shabbat. We start with Torah. We start with learning. We do Havdalah at the, at the, at the Washington Memorial. We are literally grounding ourselves in that. And then we go to the textual tradition, then the students prepare, and then they go up and they use the spiritual practice, the learning, and then express the commitments. And by the way, the students, as well as their parents and grandparents, come from across the spectrum. The assumption that I heard this morning from this, this Bima was that somehow the reform movement uh, is following the Democratic Party and it's political, not religious. Is that same critique not something you could say to conservative? Can someone look at, for example, um, various conservative uh, religious organizations, uh, including some political ones, that frankly seem to be at odds with core Jewish values? So I think underneath everything we do are our core Jewish values. We believe that. We practice that. I'm looking around, I see a lot of rabbis who do that as well. So let's not purvey a, a caricature that's simply not true and accurate. But the caricature of a Judaism without activism, can we take that on? Because that's offensive to me. To say that activism is not a part of who we are. We always tell the story of Abraham Joshua Heschel praying with his feet. Um, it's an inspiring story. It's not the only way he prayed. Uh, there's there's study, there's spiritual practice, and then there's a world that cries out. And if we are not, as a movement, going to figure out how to do that, let me just close by saying, first of all, there's always dissent in our tradition. Our Talmud doesn't record all the arguments just as a kind of one block. They include the majority opinion, the deciding opinion, and the minority opinion. I think we could be better in our congregations, in our movement, certainly in our country and in North America, to be more respectful of divrei um, acher, be more respectful of people who have a different view. At the end of the day, the chicken has to be kosher or not kosher. The commitment about climate change has to be yes or no, and, but we can also respect the different views in our community. So let's not cut off discussion, let's not cut off study, but let's also not spend our lives without a conclusion that leads us to make a difference and to shape the world as God calls us to do. So I, I just think, you know, it's one of those things that's said about us. I think I've heard it said uh, among us during these two days. I would just push back, I think, our uh, Religious Action Center in Washington, D.C., which is called the Religious Action Center, because it's about religious values taking shape in the world. That's called public morality. It's fundamental what it means to be Jewish. Yesterday, today, and I pray tomorrow. If I sum up all of the questions, people want to know what you heard these two days and how you envision your organizations changing in a recharging Reform Judaism milieu. So talk about something you're going to go home with, something that you're going to be passionate about, 
based on your experience here, um, and how you are open, perhaps, or not, to changes to be made so that you personally, as leaders, can recharge Judaism. That's kind of the summary of all of these cards. So just from what I heard about yesterday and what I have been part of today, it's clear that there is hunger for deep, meaningful conversation. And that's wonderful. And thank you, Ami, for making that happen and, and everyone who, who worked together on this. Um, it is not that we have never had deep and meaningful conversations before, um, but certainly this has been a, a period of three years in which we you know, have not come together enough and we have not had enough meaty, meaningful conversations about the biggest questions. Like, I, I, I want to be honest about the fact that we have been in crisis for three years-ish, right? And we are, please God, not anymore at this point. And so I, I leave here with excitement about how do we continue these conversations and other important conversations? How do we, I mean, it's wonderful to see people, I'm so used to just seeing rabbis. Like, it's so nice to see a whole community here of people, my cantorial colleagues, educators, lay leaders, I mean, how wonderful that is. And, you know, that, we have to keep that wide conversation going. We have to keep learning together. We have to keep growing together. Andrew? This will shock my friend Rabbi Perlin. I don't have three, but five takeaways. Um, number one, one of the things that I've taken away from this from the beginning, from Ami and Bennett and Mark's original conversation, is how important the, qu the questions are fundamental. What is Reform Judaism? What does it mean to be a rabbi, a Reform rabbi, a Reform kind of all of this? It's just reinforced. And to continue the conversation about that. Number two, I really do feel the pain and the distress of the conversation, particularly around Israel, and the pain and the feeling of the need to hear the emotional resonance of the stories. And that came through so palpably yesterday. And the, the fact that there may be disagreements about how to approach it doesn't negate the fact that I hear it, I feel it, we have to address it. You know, I come back to Tarlin's example, we have to create the space. Number three, just, I'm just going to praise Ami Hirsch to, I mean, I publicly said places that you and I are going to disagree, but to foster, to have the leadership, the vision of this, this is Reform Judaism. This is the idea of putting it back in the people. Number four, the Amplify uh, program that you are launching, which I'm, I'm very proud to, to be invited to teach in and be happy to, and uh, we'll, you know, bring, bring them in. We, um, my predecessor, who was bar mitzvahed right here, Rabbi Aaron Pank, in a blessed memory, uh, had actually formed a partnership with Akiva Tour in, um, in the Israeli government to do just that for recent graduates to bring it back. So I thank you for taking this up and recharging that idea in an even more thoroughgoing way. Um, number five, finally, it reinforces my view, and I want to give credit to my board chair, David Edelson, for partnering. HUC needs a bold vision forward. 
And I believe that that vision has to be based on us being leveraging our vibrancy as a movement, that every place you walk into where there are students, you feel the strength and the power of a collective and that we are creating laboratories of experimentation, laboratories of sacred and respectful communities, communities of spiritual exploration and academic inquiry. And that idea of a laboratory means that we're elevating the values of charitability of listening before reacting, of political diversity within our walls, and requires us to continue, as we've had the last few years, for HUC not getting out to the public sphere and signing on to statements politics, but rather encouraging our students to be reflective and cheering them as they go out and they do their work in the exactly the activism that Rec Jacobs and the URJ and our congregations are leading. So I just have one, um, and it's big. And that is that, frankly, and this is going to just directly to my colleague and my teacher, Rabbi Ami Hirsch, this is, this is our reform movement. We've got so much strength. And we've got serious and thoughtful debates about how to do this as well as we need to. So to me, the biggest takeaway is I didn't hear anything that didn't belong right in the center of reform Judaism or reform Zionism. What I would love is to make sure that these conversations are part of the larger conversations and other people hear these conversations and that we hear the other voices in our movement. This was not the full spectrum. And I think some of our plenaries were deliberately meant to be a devar acher, to be able to present views that are not heard as much as, as people might want. And I thought that was powerful. But it's important not just to preach to the choir, but to preach to the congregation. We have a large congregation. Let's figure out, and this is really a, a, just a, a quest for the deepest partnership that we can have. Rabbi Ami Hirsch, you're one of our great rabbis. You're one of our great Zionists. Your passion is infectious and it's, it, it's inspiring. Let's, let's do this work together of recharging Judaism, recharging our Zionism, Recharging our activism, recharging, if I think of Dick Hirsch, who founded the Religious Action Center in Washington, D.C., who said that social justice is embedded in the Zionist project. Let's bring the strands together. Let's not, it's easier for every subgroup within our movement to kind of peel off and to be among themselves. That's what's happening in our larger culture. We're not involved in that give and take. That's a really beautiful, powerful thing. How many of our congregations have the give and take of dynamic and different opinions about things that matter? Let's really live our reformed Jewish commitments to be that big tent. Big tent still has boundaries, but it's big and it's inspiring. And I think my time these two days, and I've been here almost the whole two days, has been quite uh, important and very positive and also reconnecting. It also is clear to me that people came with different hopes and different concerns, and they leave with different hopes and different concerns. You know, at the end of the day, that's what it means to be a movement. So let's celebrate the diversity, the strength, and the differences, because no one is gonna model unanimity as a religious community as the model. It's not. It never was, and it shouldn't be. But let's figure out how to do, the things we're talking about are big and they're not gonna be accomplished by a congregation or by one of our institutions. 
It's going to be accomplished because we all together roll up our sleeves and say, this is our movement. We're responsible for revitalizing it, recharging it, not once every 150 years. These things should not begin and have an end while we're here. These are ongoing. These are big. These are important. And I look forward to that, that uh, opportunity to work with you towards the goal that we have of a future we can't fully imagine, we can't fully articulate, but we're, we're driven, we're, we're commanded, and we will reach that um, inspiring future by building it together. Thank you. Thank you. After we finish each book of the Torah, we say three words, chazak, chazak, venit chazak. Let us go forth from this beret sheet for future books so that together we can write them and we can challenge one another to make them the best stories yet to be. Thank you all for being fellow travelers in the quest for recharging the Reform Judaism we love and the Reform Zionism we cherish. <laughs>